we'd like to talk about. If you were here last week, you heard my brother talk about baptism. We're not going to be talking about baptism in great detail this morning, but it dovetails very nicely in what I do want to talk about, and that is being born again. And some of you might be thinking to yourselves, so you're talking about baptism. (laughs) Well, in a way, but in a way, no, we're not. You know, this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is interesting in a lot of ways. There's a lot of different angles you could study this this conversation. You know, Nicodemus was a, a bit of an anomaly among the Jews in that he actually had some respect for Jesus uh, and the things that he taught. It says that he came to Jesus by night. We don't know if that's because he was trying to hide what he was doing or simply because that he um, didn't have the time during the day. But whatever the reason, Nicodemus says, hey, I know you're a teacher that's come from God because nobody else can do the things that you do except God is with them. And Jesus talks to Nicodemus about very spiritual things. He talks to Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus, as a ruler of the Jews, this just sort of blew his mind. He he said, how is this even possible? What are you talking about? And it's interesting to me to, to think that he had to be a very knowledgeable man of the scriptures of the Old Testament, and yet this concept of being born again was completely foreign to him. He had no idea what Jesus was talking about. And when you think about where he's coming from, bloodlines and ancestry were very important to the Jewish nation. It was very important for a man like Nicodemus to know who his ancestors were. Jews wanted to be able to prove, I can trace my ancestry back to Abraham because that showed that I'm a member of this nation, God's chosen people. And it was very important to them. In fact, it was important in a way so that we know the ancestry of Jesus. And we read about that in the New Testament. So you can trace the ancestry of Mary and of Joseph all the way back to Abraham and even Adam. So to the Jewish people, bloodline and ancestry is very important. And now here is Jesus telling this man, you've got to be born again. Your bloodline doesn't really matter. The the family you were born into, the nation you were born into, none of that matters. In order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And when we think about the term being born again, and specifically in context of this passage, being born of the water and the spirit, what do we think of? Well, we think of baptism. And we use this passage to show that when being born again involves baptism, being born of the water and the spirit. And certainly that's true. But I believe this morning as we think about Nicodemus, Jesus was not telling Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, you gotta be baptized if you wanna see the kingdom of God. That's not what this conversation's about. This conversation is about, hey, Nicodemus, you gotta learn to change the way you think about things. You gotta learn to change the way that you see the world. You gotta learn to think spiritually and not carnally, not fleshly, not physically. Those bloodlines, you being born into the Jewish nation, that doesn't matter anymore. You've got to become a new creature. And so what do you think about when you think about being born again? You know, Justin mentioned this last week, hearing people say, I'm a born again Christian, as if there's any other kind. What does it mean to be born again? Does it simply mean, well, I've been baptized into Jesus, and so therefore I'm, I've been born again, and now I live my life the way I want to, and because grace? I believe the scriptures teach something different than that. Maybe being born again means we become something different. We start at that point at which we obey the gospel and we begin to change and we begin to grow. Does it mean that we literally become a new creature? We're gonna talk about that more later, but as you may have noticed, I have a DNA strand up here made out of water. I believe that physically, obviously, there's no change to a person when they're born again. 
You can't take a blood sample and say, oh, DNA test, you're, you're a new creature. You hear about somebody being baptized and you don't run into them on the street two days later and say, well, I almost didn't recognize you. <laughs> All the changes that took place when you were born again. No, that's not what it's about. But it is about becoming a new creature spiritually. And I hope to be able to show that to you. Before we get too much further, I want to talk about a concept that I think is important for us to understand. And that is this concept of being created versus being begotten that we read about in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over all, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. As you read through the creation account in the book of Genesis, you're gonna see that the creation of mankind was something that was pretty special and unique. As God created the universe, the, the stars, the sun and the moon, the earth, the, all, the, all the plants, all the animals, he comes to man and he says, I wanna do something different. Let's make something special. Let's make something unique. Something that we haven't made yet. Let's make man in our image. <laughs> after our likeness. And so that's what he did. We're special. We're unique. You know, a lot of times we use the phrase, we're all of God's, all God's creatures. You know, you may even hear people use that in the context of, you know, animal rights. We're all God's creation. Well, not really. We're created in the image of God. We have a soul. God has given us dominion over the animals of the earth. And we're something very special that he's created. But I think there's another level that's above this even. I think there's a very important distinction from being created by God and being begotten by God. We read in John chapter one, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We see several times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as God's only begotten son. Now that word begotten is not a word we use a lot. I only use it when I read out of the Bible, I think. We just, it's not a word we use. What does it even mean? Well, it simply means to bring into being. The word beget, which is the root word, means to bring into being. And so when the Bible tells us that Jesus is God's only begotten son, it means that God brought him into being. Not in the sense of Jesus' eternal self as the word of God that has always existed, but being born into this world Okay, he was begotten by God, not by a human father, but rather by the Holy Spirit. And so when the Bible says Jesus is God's only begotten son, he's God's only son born into this world that was his, truly his, his only begotten son. And I think there's an important distinction there for the fact that we were created by God and we say, oh, we're all God's children. No, not really. We're not all really God's children. We're all God's creation. And we have the opportunity to become God's children. Think of it like this. This is a countertop in my mom's house in Pampa that I made for her a while back. She went and went to the lumber yard and bought a bunch of planks of walnut, solid walnut, about two inches thick. It was all rough lumber. I took it out to the shop and I ran it through the joiner and the planer, got it all square, got it all the same size, joined them together. You know, sanded it down, got it all smooth, made this countertop. I was pretty proud of this countertop. It's kind of one of the first really nice pieces of furniture that I, that I had part in making. You know, I, I was proud of it. You know, I, I, I said, man, this is kind of cool that, I'm, that, I'm, that I made this out of just some pieces of wood. You know, and I was, 
I was nervous about getting it to her house in Pampa. I, I loaded it in the back of the truck and I, I padded my truck with blankets and I covered it up nice and neat. I was nervous as a, a cat in a dog yard trying to not to scratch the thing. And I was like, man, I just want to, I was so relieved when I got it to the house and I set it on the countertop. I thought, okay, it's, it's out of my hands now. I run, when I visit mom and dad every now and then, I'll run my hand along the top of that thing. You know, I made that. I'm kind of proud of that. This was a creation that I made. But you know, it has no comparison to this. These are my children. These are people that were begotten by me and my wife. She had a, she had a hand in it, okay? <laughs> but still, you understand what I'm saying? There's no comparison between these two. Sure, I'm proud of this creation, this countertop, it's nice, but there's no comparison. And here's a little rabbit trail for you that I planned on going down, by the way, and that is, what would, somebody, what would you say if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want you to give up this in order to save this. I'm gonna come by and I'm gonna take a, something sharp and just scuff up the top of this countertop. I'm gonna rip it in half. I'm gonna tear it up, but I won't do it if you give me your children. No, okay, scuff it. Do whatever you want to the countertop. You can't have my kids. But that's exactly what God did for us. He took his only begotten son and sacrificed it for his creation. Think about that for just a minute. And think about how much more special we are. As special as we are as God's creation, how much more special are we as his children? Why are we special? Because he gave up his only son that he'd make it possible. And without that, we have no hope. First Peter chapter one, verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, before we were created, we were begotten by earthly parents, created by God. But when we're born again as a Christian, we're begotten again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're something more special to God than we were before. We're partakers in the sonship of his only begotten son. What an amazing concept to think about. Romans chapter eight, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. You see, because of what Jesus did for us, because he was God's only begotten son, we now have the ability to share in that, to be his brothers and sisters to be God's children. And it's more than simply saying, well, I was created in the image of God. As special as that is, this is something even more special that we need to consider. So what does the new birth look like? What are the characteristics? You know, in many ways, or some ways at least, the, the new birth is analogous to a physical birth. There's some similarities, but there are also some very important distinctions that I think we need to consider as we talk about being born again. First of all, the new birth is obviously spiritual and not physical. And though there could be, and indeed should be, some outward changes that happen when a person is born again, those changes are largely because of what happens on the inside. Largely for what happens to us spiritually. The true change has nothing to do with flesh and blood, but rather a spiritual transformation. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We're born into this world through the union of a, a, a man and a woman, a fleshly union. But the, the new birth is more than that. 
It's a spiritual birth. And we're born not through corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. That is the word of God, the gospel. And the word of God that works in us after our baptism. Also, our new birth is a choice. I suppose there are many things in this life we think about we don't have a choice in. The first and I think most important is the fact that we don't have a choice at being born. The only person who has ever lived who had that choice was Jesus Christ, who made the choice to leave his throne and become a human being. But you know, I don't remember anything about a waiting room where somebody came by and said, okay, who's ready to be born? (laughs) Where do you want to live? Who do you want your parents to be? We don't choose those things. They just happen to us. The spiritual birth is different. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of God, excuse me, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, the new birth is a choice we have to make. Not that it's a choice that we can make in and of ourselves, as we'll talk about in a minute, to say I'm going to be a new person. But it's a choice that we can make to what? To receive God. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Not just anybody can be a child of God. Only those who receive him, to those who believe in his name. We're at perfect liberty to refuse the offer to become a child of God, to not be born again. We have that freedom. God has given that to us. But as many as received him, and to those who do believe in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. Not by the will of man. It was the will of my mother and father that I was born into this world. But it's the will of God. And my own will, my own choice that I make to decide to be born again, to become that new creation. This may seem a little obvious to you. I don't know. It should be obvious. Maybe it should go without saying. There are so many ideas in this world, though, about what it means to be spiritually enlightened, or as the kids call it, woke. Whatever that means. (laughs) There's so many ideas about spiritual enlightenment that don't include Jesus. There's so many, for instance, Middle Eastern religions like Buddhism that that talk about all the meditation that they do and, and achieving nirvana. I don't even know what nirvana is. It was a band when I was in high school. What is nirvana? All this spiritual enlightenment stuff that people talk, and I'm sure there's some advantage to having this kind of lifestyle where you're calm and at peace and you meditate, and I'm sure it can help with relieving stress in your life and things like that, but it can't do what God can do for us, what Jesus can do for us in the new birth. Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, that an heir of God through Christ. It's through Christ that we can become a son or a daughter of God. That's the only way that can happen. We can't make the choice to say, okay, I'm going to be born again and I'll do it all on my own. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is a necessary part of the equation. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Those things are all necessary for us in order if we want to be born again, spiritually. And the last characteristic I want to talk about is deliberate growth. You saw the picture of my kids up there a while ago, ranging from ages 8 to 15. Being in that time of life right now, I sort of have a perspective that many of you have of, of what it's like for a human being to grow. You know, 15 years ago, and it doesn't seem like 15 years, I could hold my son in the crook of one arm and not feel any weight at all. And now, 
He's a big, ugly teenager that's as tall as I am. It just happens so fast. And it really happens without any effort. I mean, when you think about it, it just really doesn't take much. All you got to do is eat and drink. And even that's instinctual. You know, when a, when a child comes into the world and is born, we don't sit them down the first day in the hospital and say, okay, this is how you eat. They just know how to do it instinctually because it's natural. Not so with our growth that should occur after the, the spiritual birth. Hebrews chapter 6, 1, 2 says, Therefore, leaving the principles, excuse me, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying in the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, of the resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. You know, Justin read this verse last week talking about why do people have such a hard time with the concept of baptism? It's really simple, it's elementary, it's foundational to Christianity. And so a lot of people have such a hard time understanding how important it is. And what he's saying here is it's time to move past that. Yes, you've been born again through the act of baptism, that act of faith towards God. But he said, now it's time to leave that behind. Things like repentance, faith toward God, uh, the resurrection from the dead. These are all elementary principles that you need to be moving beyond. In Hebrews chapter five, at the end of that chapter, what does he talk about? He's talking about people. He says, some of you people have a problem. Some of you people ought to be able to teach the word of God to other people, but you can't because you're still drinking the milk when you should be sitting down to a ribeye. You're ready for that strong meat, but you're not ready because you're not growing. And so it's, Understanding this new birth and the transformation that has to take place, we have to understand that that growth has to be very deliberate on our part. It requires effort. And it requires very deliberate action on our part to do that. Being born again is basic. Growing is something else. So, sure, being born again, being baptized into Christ, that's the easy part. Growing and becoming the new creature that God wants us to be, that's the hard part. Full disclosure, that was my introduction. <laughs> because this is what I really want to talk to you about this morning. Making the change. This is the hard part, isn't it? The easy part of this is being dipped in water and having faith in the operation of God. That's the easy part. Don't really know why we'd struggle with that. The difficult part is transforming or rather allowing Christ to transform us. Allowing him to do his work. And so that when we're born again, we actually grow into that new person that he wants us to be. A new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We talked about it a while ago. There's no physical transformation when I'm baptized. Nothing in the water that changes anything about me physiologically. It all happens spiritually. But it is a new creation. I should be a different person than I was before. For some people, that change is going to be more dramatic than others. There may be some people who grow up having no concept of what it is to be godly. No concept of, of coming to church, of praying, of talking about God, of the Bible at all. Some other people have the same thing. They live a pretty rough life, caught up in sin. Some people may be pretty, what we consider normal people. There are people who are born and raised in what we call in the church. But those people too, when they're born again, have to change. Regardless of who we are and where we come from, a change has to take place. 
And that change happens when we let God or let Christ make the change for us. When we start letting him live through us. We read about counting the cost in the New Testament. Luke 14, verse 28. Jesus said, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? And we often read this passage in, in the context of what I have to give up to become a Christian. I have to give up sinful pleasure. I have to give up my time. You know, I have to give, maybe have to give up some friends or family that influence me badly. And all these different things that we have to give up to become a Christian. I think those are considerations here. But I think the more important thing that we do when we count the cost is think about what we're in for when we become what God wants us to be. Do we really understand what he wants to do to us? What he really wants to change in us? Do we really understand what we're in for when we sign up for this? We're in for perfection. You know, a lot of times we, we try to downplay, I think. We try to downplay perfection too much, I think. And you might say, well, nobody can be perfect. And so I think we use that as a crutch. And we use that as an excuse to say, well, I can't be perfect, so I'm just gonna overlook this area in my life. Jesus said, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is it. This is the goal. And you might come to God and think, well, I've got a problem with envy or I've got a problem controlling my temper. Uh, maybe I have a problem with lust or I, you know, maybe I'm covetous or any number of things. I've got this problem in my life. I know I need to overcome this to be a better person and that's why I want to come be born again. And that's great. That's a great place to start, I suppose. But at the end of the day, the devil's perfectly happy to let you overcome one problem if you've got a problem with something else and don't realize it. He's perfectly willing to let you overcome the temptation of, of lust in, if you've got a problem with pride. Just, it's all the same to him. So we gotta count the cost and we need to realize that God is looking to make us a perfect people. Recognizing the fact that that will probably never happen on this earth. But that's still the goal. That's still the aim. The phrase having our cake and eating it too. You know, we look at perfection and think, oh, that's impossible. You know what's really impossible? This is impossible. Paul told the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You want to talk about impossible? This is impossible. To, be, to say I'm born again and to receive the blessings of Christianity but then to keep one foot in the world. That's impossible. It doesn't work. We can't do it. I've got that one little thing I want God to fix. You know, we look at ourselves maybe as a fixer-upper. You know, my brother likes to buy houses and fix them up and flip them and sell them. And we might think, you know, I'm, I'm a fixer-upper. And we expect God, when we come to him, we expect him to put on a new coat of paint. We expect him to fix the leaky faucets and to patch the roof. Maybe throw up a little white picket fence. We expect those things. But then we don't realize that what God wants to do is start knocking down walls. He wants to start buying up the property around and putting other buildings up. He wants to build towers and courtyards and fountains. 
He wants to build a palace. You may want to be a little cottage with a white picket fence. He wants a temple because he's going to come live in you. That's what he wants you to be. What's impossible? This is impossible. Letting Christ work in your life, that's not impossible. Getting a little bit better every day to partake of the divine nature. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, This is divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Listen, by which, you have, been, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. What does he say? You can be a partaker of the divine nature. What's divine? That means God. When we think of divine, I think of God, right? He said you can be a partaker in God's nature. You can be like him if you let him. If you want to be more than just a fixer-upper. But if you want to let him make you perfect. <coughs> Jesus didn't die on the cross just so I could be okay. He wants me to be like him. How do we do that? How can I be like Jesus? How can I be a partaker in the divine nature? The very next passage says this. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be partakers of the divine nature, he says, because of this, this is what you need to do. Number one, giving all diligence. What is that? That's deliberate, purposeful effort. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith. The basic faith that you had when you became a Christian, when you became a child of God, when you were buried with him in baptism, the faith that you had to do that, you add to that virtue and knowledge, so on, so forth. A little bit more every day. A little bit more letting Jesus work on your heart. Letting him turn you in, not to just a little cottage, but into the temple that he can dwell in. How do we do this? We study our Bibles. We pray to God. We come to church. We help those that have need. We serve. We fellowship with one another. We preach the gospel to the lost. We let Jesus work in our lives. We overcome temptation. We do that. We do that and we do more and we do more and we do more. And we're never satisfied. How do we be born again? How can we be born? How can a man be born again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? No. A man has to be born of the water and the spirit. What does he have to do? He has to let Jesus Christ come and dwell in him. And little by little, every day make him the kind of person or her the kind of person that God wants them to be. Paul said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are before or ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call in God in Christ Jesus. Never being satisfied. Never saying I've attained or I've achieved or I've apprehended what God wants me to be. That concept of being perfect when we think about that and say that's not really possible for us to do, we should think about it in terms of I'm going to continue to try to do that instead of, well, if I can't be perfect, then I'm just going to leave it be. No, Paul says, I don't count myself to have apprehended. 
I'm gonna keep moving forward. I'm gonna keep reaching forward. I'm gonna keep going until I can't go anymore. And when this life is over and when Jesus returns and we're raised with a new body, then we'll have achieved what we've been working for our entire life. I don't know where you stand this morning. I don't know the condition of your heart. There may be some here this morning that have never taken the initial step of being buried with Christ in baptism. The initial act of being born again. There's no more important decision you can make. As we talked about earlier, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's not like it's complicated. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day. And you obey that in baptism by being buried with him in baptism. The old man's crucified. You're raised to walk in newness of life. That's as simple as it gets. We're here to help you with that this morning. If you've been sufficiently taught, I want to take care of that. Please come forward and sit on the front row. If you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing.